Imagine a group of killers so unstoppable, so ruthless, and so untraceable. They managed to leave their mark on the world centuries after their order was destroyed. That's the story of the Order of Assassins, a mysterious group we're going to try to learn a little bit more about today. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Killing Miss and Hidden, your favoriteest podcast in the world, and I'm your favoriteest podcast host, your old buddy Brad. Hope everyone's having the loveliest of lovely weeks. Today, we're going to do something a wee bit different. Some of your troublesome listeners may argue that today's topic is better suited for a history podcast. I wouldn't object. To a history podcast covering this topic, but I also think we have jurisdiction. Their subject was basically a cult that did lots of murder. It's just a really old cult with really old murders. Regardless, we're forging ahead. You know, I spent a really long time looking for a topic that grabbed me for this week's episode. I wasn't in the mood to cover just another, you know, run-of-the-mill murder. I really actually looked for an alien abduction case because we haven't done anything weird in a while. And I was committed enough that I went through the Amazon books under a search of just alien abduction. Oh boy, you should try that sometime because you come up with so much erotica. Like, a lot. An amount that seems obscene. I was uh, quite shocked at the volume of it. Needless to say, we're changing the focus of this podcast to alien erotica starting. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But if we did, my God, we could do 200 episodes on it. All right. Now, I'm sorry. Before we begin, I'm going to do a mini ad. We normally don't do business up front. I'm making an exception for this one. So a couple of years ago, you probably heard about this a YouTuber by the name of Mr. Beast started a campaign called Team Trees. And he ended up raising enough money to plant over 20 million trees throughout the world. Despite COVID and all the mess that caused, they're on track to have the 20 millionth tree in the ground by the end of the year. So he's starting a new campaign. He wants to remove trash from our oceans, our beaches, and our rivers. This campaign is called Team Seas. He's raising money through the website, teamseas.org. For every dollar donated, they'll remove one pound of grossness from the oceans. The fundraiser will be open through the end of the year. As of me writing this, which is days before I record and days before you hear it, Mr. Beast has raised over $10 million for the ocean cleaning nonprofits he has partnered with. I think he's thrown in at least $100,000 of his own money, maybe more. It's a little hard to tell who's donated what, but... Um, you know, he, he's got some skin in this game. He did in the Team Trees as well. And for what it's worth, I've made a modest donation in the name of Killing Missing Hidden as well. But anyway, I just wanted to bring that to your attention because if you like the idea of fishies and sea lions and dolphins having pretty beautiful waters to play in, go to teamseas.org and donate. Even if it's only a buck, just do it. That's one less pound of trash mucking things up. All right, all right, I won't 
I won't advertise anymore. Nobody asked me to do that, by the way. That's just Brad seeing something that was important to Brad and passing it on. Um, but, you know, now on to our ancient murderous cult story. Now, I'll begin with an apology in that I am no doubt going to butcher so, so much of this, uh, particularly pr the pronunciations. So, be and, you know, this is challenging, too, because in order to understand the Order of Assassins, we kind of have to have a little foundational history on the Middle East and the Islamic faith. I mean, don't worry, this isn't you know, going to turn into a high school history class or a Bible study or anything like that. And, you know, I, I'm just going to cover the high points here. And if in doing so, anything I say, you know, it comes across as flippant or short sighted or whatever, it's not meant to. I'm just trying to get through this to give you enough background so we can get to what I'm sure you're much more interested in, which is the activities of this group. So uh, please give me the benefit of the doubt here if I say something that could be construed as offensive. That's not my intent. So we're going back in time to 632. And this is when the prophet Muhammad died. Which kind of screwed up his followers because no one really knew who was charge of this new religion he had kind of helped found. Basically, there was this fracture in the faith. As Muhammad's father-in-law... And his son-in-law each tried to become the big cheese. This is called the Sunni-Shia divide. We end up with about 85 to 90% following the father-in-law, which is Team Sunni. For the purposes of our story, though, we're a lot more interested in that 10 to 15% that followed the son-in-law. They're known as the Shiites. Everything, again, to cut this... Uh, to the chase as much as possible. Everything is kind of topsy-turvy in this religion for about 30 years. When you then have a panel of judges who are appointed to decide who should be the rightful head of the religion. And the Shiites lost. So naturally they cried foul, said a few things that couldn't be taken back, and the Shiites just kind of fell into a foul mood after this. In all the turmoil that followed... There was a sect that broke off from the Shiites called the, here's my first big mispronunciation, I'm sure, Kaharjiites. They ended up killing Muhammad's son-in-law slash the leader of the Shiites for differences. So this caused one of Muhammad's grandsons to take the lead, and he worked out a deal with the Sunnis where they were going to kind of trade off leadership every year. But arguably, the Sunnis kind of reneged on that deal. And so we have this pseudo war between these two factions with lots of killings of leaders and other influential folks. Well, in the course of all this, another sect decided to dissociate from the Shiites. And they began calling them the Ismailis, based around the name of the man they wanted to lead the religion, Ismail. The Ismaili faction had this really old-school view of the religion and strongly opposed what they viewed as heathen lifestyles and indulgences. Now, they were a small group. I mean, again, it's a minority of a minority, but 
these guys were really dang good at doing the whole grassroots thing and were able to recruit new members to their following pretty quickly. The Ismaili faction established an empire out of what is now Cairo, Egypt. Now, moving to the early 12th century, I believe, and some of these dates I found kind of contradicted each other. So, you know, if you've got a test coming up on, you know, Middle Eastern history or, or religious history, please, for the love of God, do not rely upon me. Um, but anyway, in the earliest 12th century, Niazri Islamism was born. My goodness. This was because the previous leader of the sect wanted his son, Nirazi, to take the reins upon his death, but some other powerful folks weren't really cool with that idea. So when the dad died, these other guys kind of seized the throne out from under Nizari and gave it to his brother. Now, Nizari wasn't really on good terms with his brother, so he fled to Alexandria with a band of followers. He recruited a bunch of folks who didn't really care for his brother and tried to start an insurrection, but it failed and Narazi was killed. Narazi's son, Abu Ali Hassan, dashed for his life and ended up joining up with one of Nazari's most loyal followers in northern Persia. Now look, we're getting somewhere, I promise. We just gotta get through this stuff. It's the Nazari Islamios. Wait, that's not right. Ismailis. Uh, the Nazari Ismailis that we're most interested in. Like I said earlier, it's you've got the minority faction here of the Shiites, and then you get folks that aren't happy within the Shiites who break off. So, Not only are they small, but they're kind of hated by everyone else. Leaders and influencers of the other factions and sects really went out of their way to paint the Nazari Ismailis as villains and heretics. And they kind of were stuck in a bad situation. Their backs were sort of against the literal wall in that they had kind of established their presence right in the middle of Sunni lands and on the edge of the Alborez Mountains. And so they knew that in order to survive, they'd have to go underground with their beliefs. Now, apparently, if you want to do some like real scholarly type of research on the Nizari Ismail, Ismailis, I am going to mispronounce that through this whole episode, aren't I? Um, if you want to do some real scholarly research on them, you got a tough road to hoe. All the outsiders who speak about them in history, of course, exaggerate what monsters they are and assign them all these characteristics that are disputable at best. And there's not much left from the group itself because... While they existed and they had their own faction, which we're going to get into here in a minute, the details of it, they had their own library, but that library was destroyed sometime in the mid-13th century. So within the Narazi Ismailis, there was a even smaller group called the Hashishin. In Arabic, Apparently, this translates to consumers of hashish. It was alleged that 
and, and this allegation is made by none other than water sports great Marco Polo, that the followers were forced to develop an addiction to hash. There's kinder translations of the name as well. Uh, like the Egyptians use the words to mean riotous troublemakers. Okay, it's not massively better, but it's a little bit better, right? Uh, even kinder folks refer to them as people of esoteric teachings or those who sacrifice themselves. So, the group's leader, as they rose to power, was this dude named Hassan, who's almost universally described as being just like super charismatic. Now, a lot of people say he was a super charismatic con artist who kind of duped others into doing his building. But, you know, we all agree that he, he, he had the cult-like charisma you look for. Uh, he made his followers, particularly the, uh, the uh, hash, hashishin, kind of his own personal army of killing machines. Now, what's interesting about Hassan is he was brought up in a very, very strict environment with very, very strict religious expectations. And it kind of caused him to be, I guess, a lot more worldly. He kind of rejected all of that, wanted to live his own life. And right around his 17th birthday, he met a member of the Hashishin who preached to him and convinced him that they had all things figured out. I mean, he like became interested in it. He wasn't a, you know, a devotee at that point, but he was, he, you know, he started studying up on them on his own. Well, while he was studying, he developed an illness and it was thought to be, you know, a chronic and deadly illness. And he just, you know, on his own, he said, well, I can't die without, you know, being right with God. So he decided to seek out the truth even harder and just became more and more convinced that the Hashishin were teaching the closest thing to the truth that could be understood. So he ended up being baptized, and then shortly thereafter was miraculously healed from this illness. Now, Hashin kind of became the leader of the group eventually. I mean, he rose to the ranks. It's not like he joined up and they were like, you're our guy. Um, you know, he, he was with the group, and he earned their respect because he was just dogged and going out and preaching teaching people about their faith and successfully converting them so that they had new followers. When now, and it didn't, it didn't hurt too, that he had a couple miracles occur in his life. Um, again, first, you know, as soon as he decides that he wants to follow this religious sect, um, he's cured of that incurable illness. When he goes out to preach in some hostile lands, he ends up getting arrested and the mayor or governor of the town sentenced him to life in prison for his, you know, egregious sharing of religious beliefs. He was in jail for a couple of days when all of a sudden the outer wall kind of collapsed 
and none of the engineers at the time could figure out why this would occur. There's nothing structurally wrong with it as far as they could determine. And the ruler who passed down his sentence kind of reached the conclusion that maybe this was a sign from someone a little bit higher in the spiritual chain of command. And maybe keeping Hassan in jail was not smart. So he said, okay, look, no more life in prison, but we are going to have to exile you. So they throw him on a ship, and the ship is designed to take him. Well, I never found where he was going, but from the sounds of it, like we're moving him out of the Middle East and up maybe into the European region, okay? Well, the ship that was taking him away had a bunch of other exiles, crew, uh, other travelers and all that. Storm hits the boat and sinks. Everybody dies except for Hassan. He manages to get to the shoreline. He manages to rest and recoup. He you know, has a little camp there for a few days, regains his strength, and then decides he needs to get back to his homeland to be safe. And he manages to sneak through all of this hostile territory back home without getting caught. So all of this lumped together made people think, this dude may be blessed. This dude may need some rank here because we can learn a two or three from him. Okay, that's our history lesson. I hope it wasn't too bad for you. But that should kind of give you the background you need to, to get along with what's coming here. All right, so let's talk about the order itself. So, to start off with, Hassan decided when he became leader of the sect, that, first of all, he didn't immediately establish this order right away. He just knew that we need to have a home that will keep us off the radar of other powerful groups while still being in a position to conduct various operations, shall we say. And he found the perfect spot, Almut Castle, a.k.a. the Eagle's Nest, a.k.a. the ca Castle of Death. Um. So this castle was 7,000 feet up in the Alvarez Mountains and was considered unconquerable. And of course, you know, an opposing force is holding it. So Hassan, with a small group of followers, needed some plan to take it over without, you know, losing all their men in the process. Now, this, this event kind of highlights how smart Hassan was. And because he was able to concoct a plan that caused his followers to seize the castle without spilling one drop of blood. This occurred in 1088. Once he kind of took over it and established a name for himself, the castle would be known to his enemies as the old man of the mountain. So if you ever see that reference, that's what it's talking about. Now, again, remember from where this order grew, okay? The fundamentalist side of Islam. So, Hassan rigorously obeyed all Islamic laws and customs. And in his mind, as a shepherd of this flock, he felt like he had to hold himself to the highest of standards. 
So whenever he did err in some way, no matter how minor, he would make sure that he would punish himself in a very public way so his people could see that he was not putting himself above any sort of Islamic law or, you know, tradition, whatever. And he expected all of his followers to do the same, particularly the Hashishin. He once banished one of his disciples from the castle forever, merely for playing a flute while in the castle. Um, that's how strict he was about all this mess. Because he walked the walk and talked the talk, like Hassan's followers were really stinking loyal to him. They have the stories about all these miracles. He really understands the religious literature they have, and he really strains to center his life around it. And so naturally, these folks who believed in it held him up as just a shining example, a paradigm of how they should be acting. So if you wanted to join up with Hassan, one of the first things a new follower had to do was swear an oath of loyalty to Hassan, as well as an oath of secrecy. And these oaths basically agreed that you agreed you could be killed for breaking any rule, and Hassan could not only kill you in this life, but he could follow you into the afterlife and continue kicking your butt. The secrets of the order were revealed to members very slowly over a long period of time, primarily as a way to ensure that no one could kind of infiltrate the group and then immediately learn all its secrets and use it to exploit um, the weaknesses of the group. And Hassan was very, very serious about these oaths, such that he ended up executing two of his own sons who failed to uphold the oaths. What did they do? Well, one was killed for drinking wine in the castle. The other was killed for committing an unsanctioned murder. He didn't mess around. Now, the grand mission of the order was to spread their Islamic teachings to the whole world. Hassan, of course, was smart enough to realize that his little small band of merry men probably wouldn't last very long if they went out preaching in an open fashion. And they couldn't really go to war about it with hostile rulers, as was the style at the time. I think one quote I saw from Hassan said that, quote, a calf has no business challenging a full-grown bull. So the order focused more on conducting clandestine operations designed to hit enemies where it hurt most. Heads of state, religious leaders, business leaders, generals, etc. Now the Order of Assassins wasn't formally established until 94. A few years after Hassan seizes his mountaintop castle. It was after Hassan had orchestrated a few successful missions to take over nearby cities of great strategic importance, too. Now, before the order was formally established, his tactics were the same. They were very effective, but they were very slow. Essentially, he would send his followers to the town, have them blend in to the background, 
and then start to preach. And slowly they would gain converts who would in turn preach, you know, their faith. And slowly the faith would control the majority of the city. And this specifically included and was focused on the guards and the soldiers stationed there. So he'd have over half the city at least, most of the guards and soldiers certainly loyal to Hassan, before he would attempt to seize the city. And the way he would attempt to seize the city is he would walk in through the city gates, ask to meet with the leader, and tell the leader that he needed to step down because this was now Hassan's city. The leader would laugh, order Hassan to be arrested, and inevitably the guards would arrest the leader. Now, the first city Hassan poached, it took just over two years of the slow preaching work for this plan to work. But it, it, it worked out. He got the city. Plus, you know, in addition to all the time that it takes, there's the problem that sometimes there would be friends of the city's leader who didn't like what happened and would send a force to retake the city on behalf of their friend. And that became problematic because, again, Hassan doesn't have hundreds of thousands of followers. He just has what he has. Uh, there's one particular story where only 70 of his men defended a city from being retaken. And this was after the city had basically run out of food and other provisions. So the attacking force just went with siege tactics to try to slowly starve out Hassan's men. Hassan had sent word to one of his lieutenants that this was occurring. And this dude somehow manages to travel. I got the impression, even though I didn't see numbers, but I got the impression that it was at least dozens, probably over 100 miles, with a force of 300 men who were bringing just cartloads of extra weapons and extra food. And the, these 300 men in all their carts somehow managed to sneak past the sieging forces resupply the 70 men inside the city and then participate in a sneak rear attack on the invaders to break up the siege. So they, they were kind of bad, <laughs> you know? I mean, you, you couldn't have a full scale traditional army campaign with them, but, uh, you know, they, they could get you. I, I guess, you know, they couldn't win a prize fight, but a barroom brawl, you'd, have, you'd, you'd be up against the wall facing these guys. Okay, so now if you joined Hassan's group, and if you were somewhere between the ages of 15 and 20, and male, you would be asked slash directed to join the Hashishans. And these were the precursors to the assassins. To be accepted into that group, not only did you have to fall in that age range and be the right gender, but you had to be of good health. You had to be aesthetically pleasing, but not distractingly so. You had to be athletic, 
and you had to have a confident speaking voice. So in other words, you couldn't really stand out in some memorable way. People would react positively to you, but it's not like they were seeing, you know, you know, Morgan Freeman walking down the street or, or whoever it is that the teen girls get all excited about. Now, if you were accepted as an initiate, you'd get thrown in the basement of the castle. Doesn't seem like a very good reward, but it was the first part of the training. In the basement of the castle, there are no windows. There are no paintings. There's basically no comforts of life. There's certainly nothing distracting in there. Because your purpose of being thrown in the basement was you were to spend all your time studying religious doctrine or be in a state of prayer. That was your goal. Again, the overriding mission of the order is to spread their Islamic faith throughout the world. And so the first thing you had to do is learn all the details about that faith, which kind of makes sense. Once you completed this initial bit of training, you would be taken in small groups to the valley, also known as paradise. Now, there's lots and lots of different versions of how this went down. I'm going to share the version that's most favorable to the order. I don't know why, just, just because. So this was Hassan's greatest recruiting trick because this valley was something that he had helped create where it's, you know, in the mountains, obviously, where they were, but it's instead of just seeing nothing but rocky ground and, you know, desert and things like that, you had this just gorgeous, gorgeous little slice of heaven is what it was supposed to represent. There was just lush plants everywhere, beautiful gardens with songbirds. You had other animals scurrying around. There were beautiful fountains placed throughout the valley all sorts of artwork hung up, you know, sculptures placed throughout. There were actual little streams of milk and wine and honey that flowed through the valley. Like you could take a goblet and just dip it down into this little stream and have you a bowl of milk or, or wine or what have you. And, um, what? Oh, oh, oh yeah, there's women, like lots of women. Lots of beautiful women. Lots of beautiful, topless women. Who are all there to provide whatever sort of service you require. This was everything from cooking to sex. Now, the hash addiction stories always claim that this is where the addiction would begin. Either before you were taken to the valley or when you arrived at the valley. But regardless, the valley was not like a myth or a hallucination. Archaeologists have found evidence that it existed to some degree. Whether it was as fabulous as described by those who visited it, who knows, because it could have been the, uh, the drugs talking, if there were drugs. But regardless, so the small group of boys were allowed to stay in this paradise for four to five days before being thrown back in the basement. 
Hassan would then visit with the small group in the basement and say, look, this is just a sample of what awaits you in the afterlife if you serve me. I need to know if you want to serve me. Now, Hassan wouldn't let anybody commit right then and there. He said, you know, think on it for a few days. This is a very important decision. We'll talk again. And so a few days later, they would be brought out of the basement again and led into the castle's courtyard to answer Hassan's question face to face. Most of the time, I would dare say nearly 100% of the time, the kids would agree to join. I know, it shocked me too. So once they agreed to join, the young men underwent daily and exhaustive martial arts training, other forms of combat training. They also had to learn about tactics and strategy, chemistry and poisons, the arts of disguise and espionage. All were expected to speak several different languages and dialects fluently, as well as mimic the various mannerisms of the areas they learned the language of. And this, of course, was on top of their continuous religious studies. The harming of innocents, particularly women and children, was strictly forbidden by the religious teachings. So these young assassins were being trained to become experts at disposing of a target with no collateral damage. Now, their targets couldn't just be anybody either. There were rules about that. They had to be powerful men who either promoted false worship or persecuted the righteous in some way. So it's kind of a tough honor code to follow. Now, on top of all this, the assassins were also strictly forbidden from committing suicide. It went against the religious doctrine. So if they found themselves facing danger, they had to fight until they could escape. They had to fight until they were arrested or they had to fight until they were killed. And this is important because the odds of an assassin completing his mission and walking away were always very, very low. On top of this, there's some stories, although they're conflicted, that it was considered dishonorable to return after a successful mission, meaning the assassins were expected to die. And of course, most were eager to, considering the reward they had been promised in the afterlife. Legend has it, that Henry I of England actually visited with Hassan one day and questioned who had the most loyal soldiers. Hassan then made a subtle gesture to two young men who were training in rooftop combat. When they saw the signal, the boys instantly jumped off the rooftops and swan-dived into the pavement, or I guess it's concrete, maybe just rocks. The hard stuff at Henry I's feet, instantly killing them both. And Henry I said, well, I guess perhaps your soldiers are a little bit more loyal. Now, what we've talked about are just for those that were selected to join the Order of Assassins. But even the non-assassin followers were painfully loyal to Hassan. 
they would often be imprisoned and tortured when they went out preaching just so the enemies could learn more about their sect. But very, very few were known to break. Going back to the assassins, they had to live with this strict code. I mean, we've already talked about some of it, but just in day-to-day life, they were forbidden from engaging in any material or sensual pleasures. That meant no alcohol, no music, no flamboyant clothing, no excessive eating, just no luxuries, period. Having said all that, sex was allowed. But any violation of this code, even a trivial mistake, could be considered a capital crime. And you could be killed just for, well, like his own son was killed for drinking wine inside the castle. That could easily happen to you. When they went on missions... This is where you see a lot of tales claiming that the hashish was used by the assassins at this point in time, when they're on missions. Allegedly, it was given to them to help kind of numb their emotions. So the use of this drug, obviously, is not a violation of their oath. And, you know, there's some rumors, too, that If you were a successful assassin and you pulled off some big jobs and made it out alive, you'd kind of be moved to the elite of the assassin corps and you could get some exemptions from some of the rules. Um, These rumors are usually presented, however, as part of an argument that Hassan cared a lot more about gaining personal power and control of land rather than for spreading religious doctrine. But, I mean, that's a debate for historians. It does kind of contradict the idea that there's dishonor in surviving a mission when he's rewarding those who survived multiple. So I don't really know where that would fall. I do know that Within this sect, there were seven different ranks one could obtain, with Hassan being, you know, the main rank. And only the lowest ranks had the assassins that were sent out on suicide missions, essentially. The higher in rank you were, the less likely you you were to face death during a mission. And the way you rose in rank was a lot like what I understand Scientology operates on. You got to pay to move up in rank. So I guess if you go and commit an assassination and bring back a whole bunch of gold with you, maybe that was a good way to get these extra benefits they were talking about. Okay, so despite all of our modern day popular conceptions of what assassins would have looked like. There was no uniform. You know, they didn't wear this hooded cloak like you see in the Assassin's Creed video games, if you're familiar with that. They didn't wear any sort of protective armor under their clothes. Their training was you blend in. Camouflage is your armor. So they would dress as beggars and as monks and servants and merchants and other commoners. And sometimes these missions they'd be sent out on, the expectation was they would be carried out very slowly. 
like sometimes over the course of years, where the assassin would try to slowly maneuver into their target's inner circle so they could make the kill. We hear the word assassin, and immediately we think of someone whose sole purpose in life is killing, right? Well, that really wasn't the true goal of the assassins. Again, they wanted to get rid of their followers being oppressed, and they wanted to get rid of the spreading of false religious teachings in their mind. So... They would try other things before they resorted to murder. For example, bribes. A nice, generous bribe did the trick most of the time. You know, you go to a governor that's giving you problems, you bring a chest full of gold, all of a sudden your problems go away, right? But of course, you've got men in power who are very stubborn, and they, you know, don't want to be told what to do, even if it comes with a nice payday. So then the assassins would engage in some form of psychological warfare. And there's many stories of a governor or what have you falling asleep. And then when he wakes up the next morning, laying on the pillow next to him is a dagger. And underneath the dagger is a note basically saying, you need to do this and this and this. Or next time you wake up, this dagger is going to be in your chest. And this would usually drive the target crazy. They'd go into fits of paranoia because is it one of their servants who's an assassin? Or are these assassins so good that they're just able to come and go as they please from my own house without getting caught? And so that would cause a lot of the the bad rulers in the assassin's mind to uh, take the note, follow the instructions, and not risk death. But naturally... There's no getting through to some men, right? So in that case, you just got to kill them. Now, if an assassin had to engage in murder, it wasn't done through poison or a crossbow bolt being shot from the shadows. Those were considered very cowardly ways to kill someone. Instead, assassins used uh, fetal which is a dagger with a curved tip. And there's no showmanship. The assassin would simply, their goal was to get close, stab once, straight into the target's heart, and walk away. Now, the assassins did carry with them poisons and crossbows and other devices of death, just in case they had to resort to those tools or to have those tools available in to use as part of their escape, but most were able to complete their mission with only a dagger. Now, because an assassin was expected to use a dagger to make their kill, almost all of their primary training was for close quarters combat. Quick movements from close range, that was the goal. They practiced this form of martial arts known as jhana, I believe, which focused on grapples and low kicks and very short but strong strikes. But again, ideally, there was going to be no combat to be had. You know, get in close, make the stab, walk away. The order effectively mixed, you know, looking back on it, the zeal of the Japanese kamikazes, the stealth of ninjas, 
and just the ability to work as deep cover spies for years on end. But everything I've said about their style is contradicted by one of their core philosophies, okay? Not only were the assassins expected to murder their targets if it came to that, but if it came to that, the murder had to be done in a very public place in broad daylight solely to maximize the order's notoriety and publicity. The idea was make the threat of the order focusing on you so terrifying that there'd be no need to send an assassin to make you change your ways. All right, so we've got a rough idea of the Order's history. We've learned how the assassins were recruited, trained, developed, what their kind of code of conduct, maybe code of honor even was. So let's talk about some of their more famous jobs, okay? The very first mission the Order conducted occurred before the Order even officially existed. It was in July of 1092. Hassan sent his men after the orchestrator of that siege of the town we discussed earlier where the seven dudes were stuck, 70 dudes were stuck with no food. So that was uh, conducted by a fellow named Nizam al-Mulk. And Nizam was on a journey from Baghdad and had stopped for the night to have his evening meal slash feast. Upon finishing his meal, Nizam was heading back to his tent with his guards close behind, where he was going to spend the night with his harem, when a Sophie mystic approached with a petition requesting Nizam's signature. While Nazarim was ex- reviewing that petition, the mystic quickly withdrew a dagger from his sash and stabbed Nizam in the heart just under the petition he was holding. Of course, the the guards were kind of caught flat-footed. They were shocked. And the assassins started to get away, but they caught him pretty quickly and killed him on the spot. Now, when Hassan heard that the mission was a success, it's reported that he told his followers, quote, the killing of this devil is the beginning of bliss. Now, their second mission. Let's go after Nizam's son. And he suffered a very similar fate. While he was preparing to, um, uh, let's say, inspect a brothel one evening, he was flagged down by this poorly dressed beggar. And the beggar pleaded with the man, saying, All the Muslims have departed the city. There's no one left who would help a troubled man like himself. And he just, you know, went on in this heartbreaking detail about the tribulations he was suffering through. And it moved Nizam's son so much that he said, you're holding something. Let me see it. And so he handed him this petition for what he needed to get his life back on track. And as Nizam's son was reviewing it, the beggar pulled a dagger out from his rags and uh, stabbed him right in the heart. Now, this assassin was taken alive, but 
never really divulged any useful information. He just kept saying that he was hired to do this by some of the son's own advisors. He he said he was just a poor beggar who needed the money, and this was the best way to get it. So next we'll go to 11.06, when two assassins marched towards the city of Afamia, bringing with them a a very powerful stallion, a mule, and a gleaming set of armor of a Frankish warrior. When they reached the city walls, they told the city guard that, hey, we killed this Frankish knight, and we wanted to deliver his, his steed and his armor as a gift for your noblemen because we would like to join y'all's army. So the guards report this to the leader, this nobleman, and he's very impressed by the story. So he comes out and greets the gentleman and insists they come in and insists they spend the night and they have this great feast. And in the course, you know, of the evening, he gives them some rooms and, you know, y'all sleep here. We'll talk more tomorrow. So after they're kind of left to their own devices, the two assassins acted real quick and went and found kind of a weak spot in the in the walls of the palace. And there they kind of cut or dug out a hole in this wall and they made it big enough so that some other assassins could join the party. So working together, this small little group works its way through the palace, kills not only the nobleman, but almost all of his guards. And this attack is sometimes pointed to as the assassination that caused the enemies of the order to really take them seriously. And you'd start seeing a lot of their enemies suddenly recruiting more soldiers, doubling their guard. um, And they just even... They became suspicious of everyone, like even advisors I'd had for years. They, you know, how can we trust them when there's so many enemies lurking in the shadows? In 1122, an important vizier departed from Baghdad with like this whole unit of soldiers. He had armed footmen and cavalry to protect him during this journey. Four assassins were sent to take him down. And they tracked this procession for days. And they were very, very patient. And they waited until the procession reached this place where the path narrowed significantly and was surrounded on both sides by thorn bushes. Kind of meaning, you know, everything slowed down. Everybody had to walk carefully and all that. Well, as the viziers going through on his mule, one of the assassins leaps from the bushes. You know, in my mind, I just have this comic book view of him jumping out with two daggers raised and brings his weapons down hard on the vizier, but he misses. And he hits the, the steed he's riding, the mule. And then seeing that he missed, he dropped his dagger, you know, he left his daggers and just darted on. 
Well, of course, the bulk of the soldiers and cavalry give chase. And they caught him near the Tigris River and killed the man. So they're patting themselves on the back. What a good job we did. On their way back to where they left the person they're supposed to protect, they get attacked by another assassin. And again, it's a surprise attack. They're confused by it, all that. But they manage to catch the guy and take him down. And then a third attacks him. Well, it turns out that assassins number one, two, and three were there just as distractions. It was the fourth assassin whose real job it was to kill the vizier. And so by the time all these troops got back to where this incident started, they found the mule dead and they found the vizier dead with a dagger wound to his chest straight through the heart. The fourth assassin was the only one to get away. Now, Hassan wasn't immortal, and he died not long after this last assassination. It was in 1124. He had been suffering from a terminal illness. It had been going on for a while. He knew death was coming. At the time of his death, the order had completed 50 successful assassinations. And shortly before he passed, Hassan wanted to make it very clear who was going to be in charge so there wouldn't be any infighting. And so he announced that Kia, one of his loyal lieutenants, was going to become the next Grand Master of the Order. And, you know, lots of people said there's no one that could follow Hassan. I mean, he had such charisma and he had such a bond with his people. Just, just too difficult a task. However, Kia did an admirable job. He stuck to a lot of the traditions and rules Hassan had established, but he was a little bit more liberal. He tolerated minor indiscretions. He also made some improvements to the castle, like he uh, built a lot of gardens there so they could grow vegetables and things like that. He also kind of tried to raise the standard of living for all the followers. He also, Kia was very successful at expanding the influence of the order, particularly up into Persia. However, he did this without sending out as many assassins. Under his watch, only 14 assassinations were completed. But he hit men that were just as important and just as influential as the order had always targeted. Now, Kia became a particular villain in the area for failing to assist other Islamic rulers during the First Crusade. And many of these rulers could not withstand the might of the First Crusade, so they were kind of stuck under a Christian thumb, which they just could not tolerate. One city leader, in an attempt to deflect blame for the losses to the Christian invaders, blamed the situation on the order, said they were working with the Christians, and sought support from other leaders so they could pull their resources together and destroy the order. Well, you know, this leader made a lot of noise, and it wasn't long before a robed monk stabbed the city leader in the heart while he was returning home from visiting the mosque. 
Two of the leader's main supporters lost their lives shortly thereafter under similar mysterious circumstances. In a separate incident, the governor of Damascus was targeted in a rather daring mission. Two assassins were sent, and over the course of two years, they managed to become employed by the governor and eventually were promoted and promoted and promoted such that each one of them were independently selected to serve as the governor's personal bodyguards. He apparently always had two men with him, and it just so happens that he picked the two assassins to be the two men he wanted with them all the time. And he trusted these boys unquestioningly. Until one day when he turned around and found two blades sticking out of his heart. Now, when Kia passed, he was proceed, or succeeded by his son, Muhammad, as the Grand Master of the Order. Now, Muhammad is known for ordering the first assassination of a Christian target. And that was Raymond II, the Count of Tripoli. Tripoli is located on the northwest tip of Libya, kind of directly across the Mediterranean Sea from Italy. When Muhammad died, his son, Hassan II, ascended to Grand Master. He made a lot of changes. Some would describe him as sweeping changes. He liberalized many aspects of the order and the religious teachings for all followers. And he kind of underestimated the order's willingness to uh, update their methods and all that because uh, he was shortly killed by his own brother His son, named Muhammad II, took over and served as the Grand Master for the next 44 years, and and was a pretty good one. Now, under Muhammad II, when he came to power, lots of outsiders saw this, and they were aware that he came to power because his dad had been murdered. And they said, okay, we've got some dissension going on in the order. Now is the time to strike. Saladin, who was the first sultan of Egypt, managed to survive two assassination attempts in the past. And he said, you know what? I'm leading this charge by God. So he went to lay siege to the Order's castle with the goal of destroying it, and he almost succeeded. He almost broke the Order. Except during the siege, he was very, very careful to make sure that no assassin would be able to get to him. So his tent was set up in the center of the camp. Guards were patrolling the area during all hours. He even went so far as to put chalk dust all around his tent. So even if somebody was walking by, their footprint would be left. And it was a stickier type of chalk, apparently, that would stick to sandals and things like that so the footprint could be followed away from his camp. And he had lamps and lanterns burning around his tent 24-7. So he feels pretty secure. But he woke up one morning with a nice warm plate of scones next to his pillow. And then he looked up and he saw a dagger stabbed into the canvas of his tent, just above his head, with a note saying that if he left now, essentially all would be forgiven. 
So uh, Saladin was a little shook up by this event and decided that, you know what, we'll withdraw just to try to keep peace with the Order. Muhammad II also uh, gained some fame because he oversaw the assassination of Conrad of Montferrat, who was also known as the King of Jerusalem. So we're coming to the dawn of the 13th century, right? And the Order has established Nazari strongholds in Persia, in Syria, in Egypt, in Yemen, Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The order was just terribly feared by rulers all over the Middle East. It got to the point where, you know, we've already said that they're doubling their bodyguards, right? And they're starting not to trust their advisors. Well, now rulers were having their servants, like when they came to serve dinner, they had to be in full armor. Well, it, the, the people doing the landscaping, you know, keeping the grounds, they couldn't be out there working unless they had a weapon at hand. But some argued that the fanatical zeal that was one of the primary traits of the order started to wane here about this point in time. And so even though we're at the height of terror, as far as all the non-followers of the Nazari uh, faction were concerned, the order really is starting, it's not obvious, but it's starting to lose a lot of its passion, and it's becoming more of just your typical labor organization or religious organization. And unfortunately, this happens right as the Mongols arrive. Now, by the time they get here, we've got Muhammad III in charge. And he saw the Mongols coming, and he brilliantly realized this is going to be bad. So he sent out some envoys to meet with Genghis Khan and managed to strike a deal with him. The Mongols came through and they took lots of land, lots and lots of land, but they left the order alone. Their strongholds were left standing. And this kind of precarious peace lasted until Genghis died and his grandson, Monke Khan, took over. Well, Monke had no respect for any followers of Islam, whatever the flavor. He didn't care. And he also had this burning desire to grab as much land as possible. Now, Muhammad III got wind that he was dealing with a new person, and this guy was not very friendly and was maybe a little bit fanatical in hating the order. So he sent two assassins to try to depose of this new Mongol, Mongolian leader. But it didn't work out very well. When they reached the home base, they were instantly sniffed out. They were instantly identified as rats. They never even got to set foot inside the palace before they were killed. 
And just the fact that assassins were sent to a city enraged Monke so much that he made it his mission in life to destroy the order for good. So, all that's going on, Muhammad III dies. And we have a new leader by the name of Wu. He steps into the Grand Master role right as the Mongolian rage appeared at the Order's doorstep. Now, the Mongols were just amazing warriors, amazing tacticians, and they knew what a challenge it was going to be to overtake this castle. And so their philosophy on how to win this battle was, we're going to show up with overwhelming numbers, and we're going to show up with a very, very public demand that if Runk would surrender and the order would raise the white flag, they would be spared. They only wanted the Grandmaster. Eventually, after suffering a few days of losses in battle, the majority of the order kind of overruled Runk and said, all right, here you go, he's all yours. So their grandmaster's taken away in chains, and the Mongols go in and destroy the castle. And they didn't really offer the clemency in the way they promised. See, a lot of the assassins were killed. A lot of the women and children were taken as slaves. And they essentially just cut off the order's head in this one fell swoop. But the order survived a little bit longer uh, because the Syrian branch was able to kind of keep on going. The way things had been designed is they had created different kind of, you know, Kind of different districts. And so the Syrian branch district manager, I guess you'd say, um, kind of took over the order and tried to keep it going as best he could. He w- immediately went to the Mongols and said, we will do anything you want. Just let us survive. And so they helped the Mongols with some assassinations and things like that. But when the Mongols went against Egyptian forces, the Egyptian forces just routed the Mongols. And at this point, the Syrian uh, order leaders said, we need to team up with the Egyptians. And so they jumped ship. But this didn't go over well with the Mongols, and they managed to defeat the Egyptians and then just went crazy making sure they destroyed every last member of the order they could find. And historians kind of agree that all the known assassins were effectively eliminated by the end of 2070. So that's our story, but we've got a few little bits we're going to bounce around. Uh, For what it's worth, the Nizari Islami's faith continues to this day. They still have somewhere around 15 million worshipers across something like 25 countries. And you know, there's still rumors that the order exists. 
that they're alive but in hiding. The last time they made any sort of public appearance was in 1807. Ali Pasha, the Sultan of Baghdad, was killed by some assassins in a very, very familiar way. One that was, you know, basically they copied the order's playbook. Now, of course, it's debated whether or not the order lives on in secret or if these guys just decided to follow what the order did and use that to their advantage. And it seems more likely that these assassins just use the reputation of the order than rather actually being a part of the order. Uh, random piece of trivia that I just found interesting. The order's symbol was that of a Chukar partridge. So they had a little birdie. And apparently uh, the story where they left the scones um, for Saladin, they were in the shape, they were cooked in the shape of that partridge. Now, the order continues to influence the world today, whether or not they still truly exist. They're obviously very popular in video games. Like you know, mentioned earlier, the Assassin's Creed games were based on a fictionalized version of the order. The Faceless Men, which is a guild of assassins, and George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, and the TV series Game of Thrones, they were inspired by the order. And, you know, even old Batman himself, he, he got influenced by the Order because he has to contend with the League of Assassins from time to time. I guess they're almost like the Order, but more comic booky. So, um, you know, my thoughts in reading this is I'm kind of left in a bit of awe. You know, there's no way such a small force should have been anything more than a nuisance to most of the powers of the day. But the Order kind of dominated the Muslim world there for a spell, right? And their efforts shaped massive political, military, and religious events. Even basic governance would be influenced by fear of the Order. They kind of became a true force of nature, you know? I mean, imagine having the patience to designate a target and then spend years waiting for just the right moment to execute the plan all while keeping these highly trained killers as disposable. They commit one kill and then freely welcome their own death. And, you know, they're kind of acknowledged as being the first to engage in suicidal terrorism, which sadly is a trend that continues to this day, a legacy of, you know, 10 plus centuries. So that's... That's our tale for the week. I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was a fun change of pace. You know, no alien erotica, but close. Um, and we need changes of pace once in a while. We can't, we can't do murders all the time. All right, so let's get to the palate cleanser. We have another totally ridiculous one for you. What is the difference between the bird flu and the swine flu? We're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So let's talk about sicknesses. What's the difference between the bird flu and the swine flu? Well, you see, one requires treatment, and the other requires an ointment. God, that's an excellent, excellent work, as always, by Mr. Eli. I hope y'all enjoyed this topic as much as I did. 
we should be back next week with some other tale to entertain you with. I say should because I'll actually be going on a family vacation for part of next week, and that may impair my ability to record, but I will give it the old college try. Again, I I just ask that you check out that Team C's website, teamc's.org. If you've, if you've got the ability to toss a few bucks their way, please do it. Their goal is to remove uh, 30 million pounds of trash from the ocean. And that seems pretty dang noble to me. So I, I think it's worth I think it's worth supporting. But you shouldn't really take advice from some guy talking on a podcast. You know, check it out, decide on your own. With that, I'm departing to quote Charles Dickens, the pain of parting is nothing to the joy of meeting again. So hopefully I leave you bawling in your bathroom so you excitedly return next week. I'm certain that's what old CD meant by that quote. All right, love you all. Everybody be good. Have fun. Be safe. Make yourself smile. Right out. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at